And we'll look at Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. I know it's not up on the screen if you'd like to turn there. Uh, I'm reading from the New New American Standard. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is Paul speaking. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the occasion of honoring our graduates, the hard work and labor that they put into earning these degrees. Lord, I pray that you would bless them, give them fruit from these efforts, Lord. Help them to walk in your way and to use these gifts, these talents, these abilities, these achievements for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom, Lord. I pray that the text as it is rich would richly bless us in in spirit. Thank you for your truth, Lord. I pray that we would attend to your word regularly and consider what you would have for for us in this text, Lord, as we pursue you together. Lord, thank you for the cause of Christ that we get to champion and rally behind because of what you have achieved for us. Uh, Let this be a time of worship as we receive your text and consider your word this evening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a great occasion. Uh, Very excited to have had the opportunity uh, to work with this class of students uh, in youth ministry specifically. Uh, If you don't know my name, my name is Aaron Johnson. I am the youth director here at Riverbend. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I still have a job, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, No, it's it's been a a great seven years for a lot of these students as they've come up through the youth ministry. Uh, Some I've just been getting to know over the last couple years or even within the last year itself. Uh, But I have a joy in leading these students. I have a great team of leaders that I get to work with that are very faithful to be students of the Word of God, to be worshipers themselves, but also to be faithful in their discipling to our students. Uh, I'm greatly gifted and blessed uh, by their presence in our ministry. Uh, These students and I have a lot of memories together. Uh, Some funny, right? And uh, just great times of worship together in Christ, chewing on the Word of God together and Lord willing, growing in Christ together and our pursuit of Him. Uh, some, some of you I taught at Riverbend Academy, even. A lot of memories there, a lot of grades, some good, all good, right? <laughs> and uh, a, lot, a lot of memories there. But um, students, I do, my, my prayer for you is that the text tonight that we study uh, would be central to you in your walk as you continue to pursue Christ, Lord willing, and as you consider His will for you in the days ahead. And congregation, this, this passage, as I've just read it, should give us pause. And I want to hang out at the beginning of this text a little bit tonight uh, to consider uh, the therefore that we see in the beginning of this text before we lead into the, the latter parts of the text itself. We have a lot 
to rally together in because of Christ. Amen? Uh, so we're going to look at that text again. Uh, but I want you to consider that in this, the text leads us to a specific reminder. And it's a reminder for the sake of an action that is to follow. And this is from Paul. So Paul is uh, sharing this with us, and it comes with an imperative, something that we're to do. And, and what is the therefore? It takes us back to uh, the beginnings of the book of Ephesians. If you're familiar with Ephesians, it is a six-chapter book. It is basically split in half. The first three chapters uh, remind us through good doctrine of what we have in Christ and other things beyond that. And then it takes us right into the therefore, which is the transition to Paul's imperative that we would walk in the faith that we have in Christ. So let's look at that therefore. Uh, the author is Paul. He's speaking or writing to the church at Ephesus. And the therefore refers back to these truths. So if you'll bear with me, let's go back to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 a little bit and consider the great truths that this letter shares with us. Uh, beginning in chapter 1, we see that we are a blessed people. Amen? We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, in Christ we are justified, holy, and blameless before God. Any sinners out there? Justified, holy, and blameless before God, our Creator. Verse 5, we have been predestined unto an adoption through Jesus Christ according to His kindness. Amen? Verses 6 and 7, we are recipients of divine grace. That is an unmerited favor. We have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of sins. Verses 9 and 10, we are recipients of God's Word. We are recipients of God's will. Specifically, namely, His plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. Continuing through the chapter, we are made to be to the praise of Christ's glory. We are given faith and the spirit of promise. We have a hope that endures, a hope that is certain and sure. We are enlightened to his truth and the hope of his calling as he calls us to himself through the gospel. This is the upward call of Jesus Christ. We are the recipients of his power by faith. Looking at uh, verses 19 through 22, we are gifted with a perfect Savior, amen, who is above all earthly rule and authority for how long? Forever. We are given to one another under Christ. Did you hear that? We're given to one another under Christ. We are the church, the body of Christ. We were brought from spiritual deadness and the lusts of our flesh destined for God's wrath. But he made us alive together with Christ in chapter 2. We are recipients of his mercy. We are positioned with Christ Jesus and partakers of an inheritance and a future glory. I think of my sister Linda and the awareness that she has today before Christ. We are privileged as His workmanship. Is God at work in you? Have you experienced that work? Is He chiseling things away 
in your life? Are you putting to death sins in your life by the Spirit? If we are Gentiles, I think most of us are, we who formerly were far off and separate from Christ are brought near by the blood of Christ and given direct, direct access to God the Father. In verses 19 through 22 of chapter 2, we have an eternal belonging into God's household. I hope you're rejoicing in these truths tonight as I have through this study. In chapter 3, we have the wisdom of God, and in Christ we have His gospel and the manifestation of His love. Apart from Christ, we would not have that full manifestation of God's love towards us. And also in chapter 3, towards the end, verses 22 and 21, we have the God of all creation. We have the God of all creation who has determined that all things are for His glory and for our good. Amen? These are truths that we ought to daily be reminded of. Because if we do not go back to these truths and consider the the gospel's effect on us, what God has secured and has promised from Genesis 3, that he worked out through the plan of redemption through Christ up until Christ was perfected in his death, if we do not go back and consider what was done for us in bringing us to newness and life in him, we will fail to walk diligently in Christ by faith. Do you agree? We need the reminders of the gospel. We need the reminders that Scripture gives us, the entire biblical theology of where God is going through his word and taking us into an understanding of his truth so that we may live with him. If we don't have that, we can't move on to the imperatives that we see later in this text. We must know Christ through his gospel. We must know him in newness of life. We must walk and rest in him and his righteousness as we proceed to do what we're called to do. And Paul, as a servant of Christ, as a prisoner of the Lord, is giving us specific imperatives that we're to walk in as we look at this text. So aren't these great truths? Aren't these great reminders in the faith of what Christ has secured for us? So beyond a reminder, as we see the therefore, let's look at a particular reflection. Not a looking back reflection, but a reflection of something that we are to be. We are to reflect something. And these are characteristics of our new identity in Christ. Look back at verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul is speaking, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. As you study this text, as you consider the truths that he just presented in chapters 1 through 3, as, we, as those truths resonate with us, it's not hard to understand why Paul would consider himself to be a prisoner of the Lord. We could easily read that and consider that to be a negative thing. I don't think that's Paul's intention here. I think it does carry with it great cost, however. The Christian walk comes with a cost. Paul physically is in prison in his pursuit of Christ, in the, in the cause of Christ, the furtherance of the gospel. Paul finds himself in prison, but he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord because his being behind bars is not falling under the sovereign submission 
of this world. Rather, it's to be where God would appoint him to be for the sake of Christ and the cause of the gospel ministry. Paul fully sees that cause. His walk comes with a cost physically. But the aforementioned blessings in chapters 1 through 3 far outweigh any comforts or rewards that he might receive in this world. Amen? There's much more to have in Christ than what this world offers us. And that should remind us of Philippians chapter 3. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And consider that package of truth that Paul has presented us with in chapters 1 through 3. So it's in the context of these blessings in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 uh, that Paul walks us into this imperative. What is a, a com, uh, an imperative, students? It is a, a command. Okay? So we're, you know what we're really good at? Um, men, maybe we struggled with the to-do list at home, the honeydew list, right? To mow the grass. And for me right now, it's like eternal painting that I'm undergoing. I'm giving myself over to 32 minutes of day in this heat to paint walls on my house, right? But uh, spiritually, we often find ourselves seeking to-do lists, don't we? Why do we do that? Why do we seek the to-do list in our walk? Because we like to prop ourselves up, don't we? We like to merit what God would give us. And uh, there's a reality here. Deep down, we know that we have fallen short. So we're trying to gain ground to receive something from the Lord. But we've got to stop and be reminded, Ephesians 1 through 3, of what Christ has secured for us, what we could not secure ourselves. We must rest in the righteousness of Christ to have the blessings and the riches that come with knowing Him. Here's the imperative. Here's the command that Paul gives us. Be careful that we don't proceed into the rest of this text without first resting in Christ. Paul says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This is not Paul saying, hey, you must now merit what Christ has for you. No, this is to walk in newness of life. Let the fruit of the gospel bear evidence in your life. Are you growing in the Lord? as you see the Lord chiseling on you and removing sin, as He is calling you to put sin to death in your life, are you, believer, walking in growth in Christ? Can you, can you see marks of growth even in your own spiritual life? Oftentimes that's more evident for those around us. And, and let me encourage us to consider one thing. Are we encouraging one another in the faith as we see each other growing in Christ. That's a great encouragement. And with that encouragement, let there be a gospel reminder that we can rest in Christ and that the fruit of the Spirit's work in us is that product of the righteousness that we're free to obey in in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let that be a consistent encouragement that we would grow 
together in Christ. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So this refers to our daily lives, a reflecting of our new position in Christ, a reflection of our hope in that future, future glory that we will receive as an inheritance. So what characterizes this manner that Paul speaks of? What characterizes this walk, our daily lives as Christians? On to verse 2 it says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, and showing tolerance towards one another in love. These characteristics sound familiar. Where have we seen these characteristics? We've seen them in our Savior. We've seen them in Christ. Consider the humility of Jesus Christ. I'm sure you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2. One of my favorite rich texts in Scripture is found there. Paul says that we are to have a particular manner in chapter 2. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This humility is a foundational characteristic for the Christian because we're to be Christ-like. And he bought us at a price that we would grow to be like him. And as we grow in him, we ought to see humility growing. Now, we have to be careful because humility is not something we can claim. I am humble. There's only one that can claim humility, and he did so in Scripture, and that's Jesus Christ. I am humble, he said. We cannot claim humility. We can only pursue it. We can only practice it in Christ. So humility should be a growing virtue for every believer. And I don't say that to be legalistic. We must rest in Christ and His righteousness as we pursue humility. So don't be too quick to get onto these imperatives without resting in Christ and considering the truths of His gospel. Why can we not claim humility? Because sin is a manifestation of pride. Agreed? Sin is a manifestation of pride. Who are sinners? We are sinners, right? We all have sin in our hearts. We are not sinless as Christ is. Therefore, we cannot claim humility. Looking back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden... They were trusting in their own wisdom. They wanted to be like God. Isn't it interesting that we're to rest in Christ in order to be Christ-like? Amen? That's the means by which we're to be like God, not a God. So we went out from under God's wisdom as we chose our wisdom or the wisdom of Satan and now the wisdom of the world before God. But Christ in Matthew 5, verse 3 said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are dependent on the Savior. Blessed are those who are dependent on Christ and His righteousness. 
in that lowliness, we find Christ. As he has humbled himself, we then can walk in humility to receive him and his gospel. Repentance by faith aligns us under the humility of Christ. In 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, The one who says he abides in Christ, in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. As Christ walked in humility, we're to walk in humility also. Here's an interesting fact. We must know Christ through salvation, through his gospel, in order to know true humility. Did you hear that? We must know Christ through salvation in order to know true humility. Because if we don't know Christ through salvation, we are at enmity with God. We are residing in our sin. And if we reside in our sin, we reside in our pride. We cannot know humility. Christ brought humility to us. Amen? So what is at the root of every sin? Pride. So what is at the root of a healthy walk with Christ? Humility. This is a dependence upon Christ, a self-awareness of our hopelessness apart from our Savior and our Christian walk. So based on those truths, students, how does your understanding of that affect your view of other people? If you profess Christ, if you're walking in Him by faith and humility, ought we not also have a compassion towards others? Recognizing the mutual need for Christ, as they need Christ, so do I. I'm dependent upon Christ, and so is everyone who sits before me. We need to meet at the cross. We need to bring others to the cross by compassion, showing them the faith that we have according to the word of God. So what is our tendency apart from Christ? Have you seen this in your own heart? To look down at other people, right? We have a tendency, a natural tendency to look down at others. You know what we have a tendency to do? Focus more on the sins of other people's and of other people and less on our own sins, right? We clearly see the sins of others, but we don't examine our own hearts. And we expect more from other people than we do from ourselves. That's a constant habit apart from Christ. We are to walk in humility by faith. So the following imperatives that Paul gives in this list in Ephesians chapter 4 all start with that foundational virtue for the Christian, that we recognize the humility of Christ in coming to us and saving us, and that we walk by faith in that humility, submitting to the truths of God and His Word, submitting to the fact that Christ is our only Savior, is the only way, He's the only one to present us before God justified because of His merited righteousness. The rest of the imperatives fall off of that. Gentleness in verse 2. This is the quality of self-control. Do you ever think about that? Gentleness is the quality of self-control. Gentleness does not seek vengeance. It does not seek vindication before men. Uh, We were talking about Job this week in staff, and I kept thinking about uh, how Job seemed to be walking with the Lord by faith. He was steady 
and not pointing the blame at God, but somewhere in there, he started to lean a little more toward, towards vindication, right? And what did God show him? Himself. He said, look at me and what I do. Can you fathom, can you comprehend who I am and what I'm capable of? And the things that I do behind the scenes that you have no notice of, can you comprehend that? And we rest, even if we can't fully comprehend it, in who God is. Why seek our own vindication? <laughs> Consider God and his kingdom. Gentleness, this, the meekness that we consider, is not a weakness. It is not a weakness. It is a reserving of capabilities or, an advantages, or of advantages that we may have before others. Christ did that. Jesus Christ did that. He, fed, he could have fed himself at the temptation of hunger. He could have elevated himself at the temptation of power before men. He could have rescued himself off of the cross. But what did he do? He submitted himself in gentleness for those that could not merit relationship with God the Father. He put us before him. As Christ did, gentleness for the Christian is submitting to the will of God. It is following his word, like Paul did, no matter the cost. It's putting aside our own pride in order to come along someone in sin. Students, are you willing to come along a fellow student in their sin? Not to broadcast it before others, but to come alongside them mutually recognizing a need for Christ, pointing out their sin in a loving way that they may be restored unto Christ in life, eternal life. Putting aside our own pride in order to come along someone in sin, seeking to restore them. It is seeking the salvation of those who have proven to be enemies. Not just enemies of Christ, but sometimes we'll see the enmity towards us because of Christ? Are you looking for vindication before others? Or do you then have a love for them? We often point out the sins and failures of those that are without Christ, don't we? Or, or do we seek to go to them with the gospel of life? Uh, students, just one little way we, that it can be somewhat of a litmus test in our lives. We're very active in social media these days, aren't we? Do we use social media to promote the gentleness of Christ to a lost world? Do we have a, can we have a tendency to soapbox? We, we can do this politically easily, right? To, to shame those that don't see things as we see them. We can do that in our walk spiritually as well. That we would uh, post things that would make those outside of Christ look shameful that we be elevated because of our position in Christ before others. Shame on us if we would consider that to be the way to go, to, to, to wield social media. Students, how are we promoting the gentleness of Christ as we share his word with others? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 say this, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready 
to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is to be our manner in Christ as we deal with others. All of these characteristics, all of these imperatives that stem from humility, we're to exercise within the body of Christ. This is our manner amongst one another. As I look at you now, I see faces that I have come to know uh, over many years, and we have great fellowship in Christ. And there are some in the room that I'm just getting to know. And I was talking with uh, my friend Josh uh, even today about my good friend Dan Arcilla, our camp speaker from this past summer. Within minutes of conversing with one another, we became true brothers in Christ in our fellowship because we have something to rally together in, and it's our belonging in Christ and in the fellowship of the one body that he has given us. Amen? Look around. We don't do this during sermons much. Look around at each other. Consider the fellowship we have because of Christ. Look at the testimonies on all the faces of the people around you. Praise God for what he has done and what he has achieved for us. And he's still doing it. You know why? Because we're given imperatives to walk in this. In humility, we're to be gentle. In humility, we're also to be patient. Patience is a mark of perseverance in the faith. There's an end goal that outweighs the current circumstances, right? Humility should produce gentleness, gentleness with an eye for the salvation of others. The spiritual growth of those amongst us should also produce patience. Is that time up there? Good, okay. Uh, Paul gives a similar directive to the Philippian church uh, when he says in chapter 2, also verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Did you, have you ever stopped to think of what Christ gave up, what Christ endured so that we could live in him spiritually? He took on the fallenness of the sinful world so that he could bring sinners to the Father in salvation. In following Christ, what did Paul endure? He is the prisoner of the Lord. He did so for the sake of the gospel's effect and for the strength of the church, which is why he wrote the letter to Ephesus. In this text, we also see that we are to show tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. I think this truth can be misapplied and misused. I don't think this tolerance that is often promoted today is meant for us to overlook sin. We're to be very keenly aware of sin in the church, which, students, is why it is so important to go to others in their sin. Number one, it's damning for them. It's also destructive for the church to leave sin where it is and to let it grow and and manifest itself. That's not our walk under Christ. Our walk under Christ is to repent of every sin, trusting in the merits of Christ unto salvation. If we don't wish that for one another, where is our heart towards one another in Christ? It's not to overlook sin. So this is a love towards one another that is unmerited, un, uh, unhindered. It's, it's not about the qualification of you haven't sinned against me lately, therefore I will now show you love. 
This love is the same type of love with which Christ gave us in going to the cross on our behalf. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. This is an unmerited, unhindered love. So one's offense toward you cannot thwart your love for them in Christ. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love. We would not know love, the full manifestation of love, apart from God sending his son to us. Consider the long-suffering of God over the millennia in the context of great sinfulness directed towards him and our rejection of who he is and who we are in him, that we are to reflect his glory. Instead, we've been out for our own glory. So consider the long-suffering of God in his plan of redemption through Christ that it has been manifest, manifested over centuries on our behalf, and he had you and me in mind. Amen? How quickly could Jesus have written off his disciples? <laughs> he was so patient with them. In love, he endured their shortcomings. How quickly might we write off someone in the church if they stumble or are slow to mature in the faith? We mutually need Christ. We mutually need the growth that we have in the Spirit together. What have you and I struggled to put off? What have we struggled to put to death in our own lives? We must show tolerance for one another and love. Mutual growth as a congregation. So why walk in this manner? Look again at the text. We're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So if called by the grace of God unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, one is also called unto a people. As you and I individually have been saved by Christ, we're also saved to be part of this body. And the church universal is particularly manifested right here as a local congregation. Amen? Are you glad to be a part of this body? We may even jump from church to church seeing or looking for the perfect church. We will not find it. However, the church is being perfected by the work of the Spirit according to the Word of God through Jesus Christ that we would one day be with Him in eternity. Amen? We're to be in this together. We're to walk in humility and in gentleness and in patience and love, being diligent to preserve the unity that Christ has secured. We are His body. Amen? This is why we walk in this manner, students to preserve the unity of the body in Christ. As an apostle of Christ, Paul purposed to spread the gospel and establish churches that would stand, stand firmly upon the truth. We have shepherds here that point us to the truth fervently and faithfully that we would stand rightfully in God's word. Though positionally sanctified in the righteous merits of the Savior, Savior positional sanctification, Right? Those that would profess faith in him would need to grow spiritually. What do we call that? Progressive sanctification. As individuals and, and as a group, 
called to a unified purpose together as the body of Christ. Church, it's vital that we recognize this significance. It's vital that we recognize this central aim of the unity of the body of Christ under his lordship. And it's vital that we be very familiar with the characteristics of this manner of walking. We see them in Christ and we must pursue them as individuals and working together as the body of Christ. So this is for the sake of the bond of peace. Paul champions this in Ephesians 4.3. It is the result of changed hearts that surrender to the Spirit's lead, producing an outpouring of love for one another. I've been a recipient of that love in my time here at Riverbend. There are countless times where brothers and sisters in Christ have ministered to me, to me in ver- various ways, whether by means of a quick encouragement, uh, by means of needing a partic- uh, meeting a particular need in my life, uh, whether physically or spiritually, but, but also to come alongside me and rebuke me when necessary, in love. It's to res- uh, preserve the bond of peace that we have in Christ. So, students, I want to finish with this last thought. So we look back to the gospel of Christ and what Christ has secured for us, and we see in that that there's a particular manner with which we're to walk to preserve the unity of the body in Christ and the bond of peace. And there's a rallying point that I want to encourage you with tonight. First and foremost, the centerpiece in this is Christ because without Christ, we do not have right relationship with God. We are not being brought uh, to God for eternity to be preserved in him and to share in the riches of Christ for all eternity. Without Christ, we don't have that. But there's a particular rallying point that involves Christ and it's even larger. The context is even larger than that. And students, I, I rejoice and I worship in this truth. Because the the unity which Christ achieved for us as the one body is tied to the unity that we see in the Trinity. Have you ever considered that? The unity that we have as the body of Christ under the lordship of Christ is tied to the unity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's important to note that Paul has reminded the believers at Ephesus of their position in Christ, that positional sanctification, earlier in his epistle, in his letter to these Christians, And it was used in order to foster momentum toward the imperative, toward what we're to do, toward how we are to walk. He reaches back for the sake of future action, going from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice, from position to behavior. Now, having described the qualities of this oneness, he points us to great truth. The the passage continues... There is. There is one body. There is. This is a singular emphasis. There is an ultimate unity or oneness that gives the unity of the church its belonging. Christ has brought us to this unity. 
And Paul is urging toward unity and the existence of this one body by means of one spirit. And this parallels what Paul also shared with the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So this brings us to the truth that the church is the body of Christ and that the Holy Spirit has a key role in establishing this unity. We're reliant upon the Spirit's work amongst us to secure our unity in Christ. Uh, Later in chapter 12 there in verse 18, Paul says that God has placed the members, each one of them, each one of us in the body just as he desired specifically just as he desired. And the context, in the context there, we see this diversity. The world sees diversity as, as division, right? The Lord specifically chose diversity within the, the body of Christ to bring us together. Have you ever considered that? Uh, Thomas Schreiner, he, he explains that Paul reminds the Corinthians that such diversity does not cancel out unity, but instead is an expression of the unity that Christ has secured for us. Uh, looking at uh, 1225, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We're mutually dependent on Christ, no matter the background, no matter the status, no matter... Uh, our, our ability to pursue things even in the near future, whether it be our academics or employment or ministry, whatever it may be, we're mutually dependent upon Christ. The eternal peace we received through Christ was extended, extended not simply to individuals, but specifically to a corporate body. Let me say that again. The eternal peace we receive through Christ, what was extended not simply to each one of us as individuals, but to us as a body. Your salvation and my salvation, the peace we receive in that, is not separate, but actually is highlighted by our oneness together in Christ. Amen? What a great truth. We were called in one body to one another. Paul urged Jews and Gentiles to accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And in Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are called in one hope. This is an eternal promise of future blessing made certain through Christ's victory over death on the cross. And there is one Lord. It is pointing to the uniqueness of the one true Savior, Jesus Christ who shed his blood. He is the Savior and King. He took on God's wrath and judgment towards sin to secure us, his bride. There's one faith, one true gospel, the revealed body of truth. There is one baptism. This is a like-minded profession, a public profession that is exclusive to the Savior, to Jesus Christ, and to the power of the gospel and salvation. Body of believers, can we attest to the power of the word of God in our hearts? 
to transform us into his likeness. He brought us from the lust of the flesh into the likeness of Christ, and he continues to do so in our lives. Do we profess Christ as Savior and Lord? Uh, do we identify ourselves with Christ? Students, walk out of here with this thought tonight. All of these singular truths, this, this uniting, we are one body under one spirit, knowing one Lord by one faith, by one body of truth and one baptism, coming to know the, the one God. All these singular truths, these uniting truths, this oneness, in their wholeness, Altogether, they represent the restoration of a people, you and me included, unto one God, the God that we forfeited at the beginning. We forfeited a relationship with him for the sake of becoming like him. And what does he do? He secures a plan of redemption worked out through all of history that includes his long-suffering in the context of our sin for centuries and millennia so that we can, in Christ, be made like Christ, to fellowship with him, to know him, and be under the unity of the Trinity. Isn't that beautiful? The, the salvation that we're given in Christ does not end with simply being saved from the consequences of sin. We're brought to a oneness with the Trinity. Amen. That leads my heart to worship. I cannot fully comprehend that truth. But I see the imperative that Paul gives us. Hey, that gospel that you came to know, that you came to know Christ in, that has saved you from your sin, that has brought you into a right relationship with the Creator, you're to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Because that calling is bringing you into something that we can't fully comprehend today, but one day we will live out in full unity with the Trinity. I, I'm to sit with Christ in His glory. He's to share with me His riches for an eternity. I can't fathom that, but it makes me worship. I love my Savior. Students, do you love Him? Do you see Him in His humility, in His gentleness, in His patience for you? Do you see him in his forbearing love towards you? If you know him in that, then walk with him in that. In humility before one another. In humility under the lordship of Christ. Are you gentle towards one another and encouraging one another in the faith? Are you gentle towards those that, those that don't know Christ? And are you eager to share the gospel with them? Are you patient with one another, recognizing that we all come with the background and the context of sin, and we're being brought from that in newness of life, putting sin to death in our lives? Are we encouraging one another in the faith? And by that, are we recognizing the love of Christ in our fellowship with one another? I say amen to those truths. Walk in that manner, and one day we will fully know the unity that we have in the Trinity and fellowship with Him. Amen? Amen. Whatever you pursue in life, whatever is in the day of, uh, days ahead, are you striving for your own kingdom? Or are you striving for God's because of what He has secured on your behalf? Walk in Him. This life is short. 
I want to walk with him, and I, I expect in full confidence to be ushered into an awareness of his glory and sharing in the riches of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that our full understanding of these things does not have to be accomplished here and now. But you are doing a progressive work on each one of our hearts and drawing us to one another in faith in one body under Christ. Lord, help us walk together in the faith, sharpening one another in the pursuit of humility for the sake of the furtherance of your word and for the growth of your people, that you would have a bride presentable to God the Father as we worship you and rest in your righteousness. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name.